Hi, friend. Welcome to the Olive Branch Mom Podcast. My name is Bridget Adler, a Catholic mom of four turned religion teacher. Each week, you'll hear interviews, tips, and strategies to grow in faith and find peace in the chaos, while we extend the proverbial olive branch from one spiritual viewpoint to another. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's jump right into it. How's it going? Good. How was your week? Better. Not as busy. Good. Um, How'd the lunch go? Fine. I mean, really everything blew over, I think. So, I mean... All that stuff ended up just being a lot of talk and no results, just kind of as predicted. And oh, turbulence. Just like really a lot of women talking behind each other's backs with no real substance to it. Yeah. Like nothing's going to change as a result. Yeah. So the work still is the work and we continue to move on with the work. That That's, is there you go. <laughs> Work's still there. The, the work is going to get done. I'm just excited because it is, we're so close to the end of the school year now. We only have next week and then um, the following week until Thursday, because Thursday is our last, June 9th, I believe is the last day of school. So we're wrapping it up, which is awesome. Good. Have a little bit of a break. Yes. 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 So yeah, should we dive right into it? Because we're going to- Let's dive right in. So yeah, what chapters are we covering for this week? Eight and nine. Uh, the altar as threshold and the altar as table. Oh, these are good. You're going to have to lead a lot of this because this is to me just stuff that I'm being informed on when it comes to sort of like the reason for this, um, when it comes to the mass itself. So educate me. Well, I liked how he brought up in, um, both the chapters, this altar as a religious archetype that can be found in almost all faiths this idea of sacrifice and giving something back to some kind of almighty being, but really the difference between these different ancient beliefs or other religions. And the one that we have here with Catholicism, Christianity is that we are not the, our sacrifice action is not making our God work. You know what I mean? Like he does not need it. (laughs) It's like a sacrifice of thanks is really what it is. Whereas on these other religions, they're kind of talking more about, you know, they need to sacrifice something for, in order for their God to love them. They need to do this so that their God will take action in their lives. Yeah. Think- this just makes me think of like, what is that one uh, Indiana Jones movie where they're <laughs> sacrificing people and he has to eat monkey brain? Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> the rain and stuff. Yeah. It's making me think of yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. I also, well, I, do, I definitely also though know um, of other religions where it's not necessarily that connotation and it is still giving things. So if you go to certain restaurants and you see sort of like up front, there'll be like a little side of like, like a lovely assortment of flowers or food, maybe some incense. It's like a, it's a giving, right? So it's like, you eat that food yes but it's sort of a set aside food like in honor of or in sacrifice for so i definitely know that there are other other examples other than catholicism that do well yeah for sure but i think he was calling out specifically how christianity is functioning with the altar in a lot of different ways so he talks about the altar as a threshold and then altar as a table so in terms of a threshold we're talking about a crossing over of a border 
but also a moment where we're in a place of, like it says on page 41, this threshold is not only a borderline, but it's a crossing over. It's something that unites a place of contact and encounter. So bit about how you, is that only something that you encounter when you go to mass or do you find that in other elements of the practice? The crossing over the. Yeah. The crossing over. Yeah. Well, yes, but I think like he's really calling out how it all happens because of and within what is happening at the altar. And it is a centerpiece of the Catholic mass. I mean, there's always more stuff going on. I mean, there's music, there's readings from the Bible, there's other things happening, but the central action that, you know, we're connecting with is happening at the altar. It's like a, um, and then he, he calls us out too, at the bottom of 41 as well. The essence of revelation is the news that God loves us and the real expression to be found in the event of the incarnation where God became one of us. So we're looking at the altar as a sign of God's presence among us and with us, but also because we are these sons and daughters of God, we're taking place in his divinity too. So we're crossing over the border only because God crossed it over to come to us. So that he's saying on page 42, his God's descent draws us upward. So what do you think about that? Well, again, my, um, I'm still interested in my question from before, like, is that presence thing that you experience? Like, first, I guess I'm, I'm just curious. Do you think that other people attending church know that, that that is the centerpiece? Like, I feel like he's dedicating such time in these two chapters to this concept, perhaps because he thinks people do not know that like, Hey, this is like, this is the reason (laughs) like, this is it. This is sort of like what we're coming to experience. Do you think that like, Hey, did you know that? Is this just a good reminder for you? I'm just sort of curious as to sort of like what the general sense is like within the church on like, or is everyone like, Oh yeah, we already do this. We know this. Or is this, it feels significant for him to call it out so specifically. Oh, it depends upon how deep your your formation has been. Because for instance, I feel like unless you're pretty well educated on what's going on in the mass, you're not going to be as aware of this yeah, dynamic. That's what I was thinking. Yep. Um, I think people that have researched, you know, the people that are studying theology, people that are um, becoming priests, people that are formation leaders or Bible study leaders or people that are really diving into their faith, they're fully aware of this what the altar means, what it consists of. But I think translating it to just your regular congregation is a bit murky because I feel like I didn't fully connect to what was happening until I did my own formation and catechesis of the Good Shepherd, because it's just all built into what we're teaching the children. It's the altar is part of what they first learn um, what's going on at the altar? What's, what's the priest doing? What is he using? What are the materials? This is one of the first things they learn at the age of three. So, Mm. and it just carries on throughout all these different levels of the catechesis. So it's the fundamental thing that, that is really, it's simple yet. Some people can't connect to it because they've never been taught. I know, you know, if you go and listen to a homily by a priest, you're going to hear a lot of this stuff. And if you wanted to read any of the writings of any of the any of the popes, you're going to hear all of this. I mean, you don't have to go too deep into researching theology to get a connection yeah. to this. 
However, okay. I feel like it's a connection that just needs to keep being reinforced. Ah, yeah. because we forget. And I think this is, no matter what your tradition, this is just something that even with this central significance of this and the fact that you see it every time you're in there, we so easily forget, right? That's just something that I'm constantly sort of coming back to again and again is how we must renew constantly. Like, you know, you, you wouldn't clean your house once a week and be like, it's clean forever. Like that's not how it works. You have to like constantly sort of remind yourself and orient yourself no matter what your practice is. So I think that, again, I think that's what he's getting to here is sort of, you know, encountering the altar. And if you're there present sort of in the moment, really acknowledging what it stands for and why you're there to sort of witness it. There is not, I'm trying to think of like, there's not in like how I grew up, there was not a great corollary to this sort of in my church. It's very sort of like all over the place worship. You know what I mean? There's no, um, there's no seminal moment apart from like a Christmas pageant where we're encouraged to think about what Jesus might represent. You know what I mean? Mm. There's really no good um, parallel but I think it's really interesting that this is sort of a key feature and a part of, or maybe the reason for um, the worship in, in, in the Catholic faith. It's just interesting. To me. He also brings it up in the next chapter about the altar's table, getting even deeper into kind of these theological discussions. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to like, before we move on to that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about on page bottom of page 42, we're talking about prayer again. Okay. Thus, everywhere we are confronted by sacred barriers repelling us, but also by the possibility of their opening for us. What we call prayer is the mysterious process of that opening. Every time we invoke God, we approach his threshold and pass over it. Hmm. So is he saying in this, and I guess maybe this is what I was getting at. So like the fact that you're there and you see the altar, the one chance that you have for like that type of revelation it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like what he's saying in this too is that preparation and opening up can happen intimately with you whenever you sort of open up your mind and heart to the concept of prayer. That's what I took for that. What, what, what about you? I think that he is talking about in terms of invoking God, we approach his threshold and pass over it. Like in every time that we are praying, we're connecting we're approaching a threshold, we're passing over it. The barrier is breached. Like we are becoming, the togetherness is there. Yeah. So, but then he's calling out how the mystery of the mass, we come to this in a special way that's different than our just ordinary, I wouldn't call it ordinary, but your, your prayer throughout the day. Because he does call out at the beginning of the chapter, the idea of the repeated procedure, going to the house of God, cr crossing the threshold, entering the sacred room within. And that just made, when I read that, I was thinking about how we prepare for catechesis of the good shepherd. The atrium is a sacred space. We tell, this is our specially prepared space for prayer, reflection, contemplation, work, connection, and awareness of the presence of God in our lives and in our hearts. And then of course, our time to, you know, reflect on the gifts that we are getting from God of his presence, the Holy spirit, things like that. I mean, this is like a special sacred room. So we have to remind mm -hmm. the children of that 
a lot because they're thinking, <laughs> you know, like, here's this, my classroom, we're going to goof off. Yeah. Like there's that wow. component of children, but the atrium time that they have is a special time that's carved out for connecting with Jesus for spontaneous prayer for contemplation. So I think because of our very humanity, like just how we function as human humans, we really do need to have carved out obvious things like here's my sacred prayer space or here's my church that I need to go to because this is my designated worship time. This is my time to participate in the mass. This is my time to blah, 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 blah. I mean, (laughs) we, I don't know. I feel like we are, our humanity, we keep coming up against what's so obvious about ourselves and then pushing against it. Like, no, I don't need that. I don't need structure. Like there's something limiting our, like the idea of our freedom by having structure, but we can never get yeah. away from it. Like we have yeah. our rituals that just keep coming back up. Like if it's your, I sit down at seven o'clock and watch Netflix and have a bowl of ice cream ritual. That's a ritual. That's a habit. Yeah. A it's, space. it's probably a specific it's chair true. that you like to sit yeah. in or a couch. Yeah. Or it's like, we cannot run away from our basic essence, no matter how yeah. we try. So he does call out some of that in these chapters too, of like recognizing that we are human. God is God. And this is like a, a contradiction or like a issue that's always been a problem with man and God, humanity versus God, because we want to be, we want to be God. You know, we want to have control, right? I mean, when you really think about like, I'm talking like in theory. Um, yeah. You want no, to have, I, I don't think you're you talking wield, in theory though. You want to wield science in a way that we can understand literally everything and there'll be no mystery. Yeah. But we can never yes. understand anything because we're not God. So then it, keeps, yeah. it just keeps coming back to that. So like he is bringing up in this chapter in particular, it's like we are approaching God and he has already come down to us and given us access to himself through humanity of what was Jesus Christ, because that was his real, I mean, they say in the very beginning of this chapter, page 38, the real God speaks in the plain exact words of his messengers through the person, life, and death of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of the Bible. It's talking of preparing for the coming of Jesus and then telling his words and his life, his, the incarnation of God and then what is to come for us in the future. So it's creation, like the redemption, what's called parousia, which is the end of time when we're going to be, everything will be all in all, or they call it the second coming Christ. You know, this is the essence of, I guess they would call it, if you're a Montessorian, cosmic education. <laughs> like mm. where we are in this world. <laughs> I like that. It sounds so funky. It sounds so new agey and like hard to wrap your mind around a cosmic education, but it's like orienting, like, for instance, if you're teaching a child, orienting your child or your own self and like, where are we in the world? Where are we in time? Where are we in history? And it's, and it's something that is a struggle for humanity. You know, people can't, it's hard to wrap your mind around these giant thoughts, these giant truths, these things that we're going to ponder, which is like why we can ponder it. We can think it, we don't have to solve it. I'm reading this other book called Mysterion and he's talking about mystery as we have this conception, like, you know, the TV show unsolved mysteries, like mysteries are meant to be solved. We have to solve them. (laughs) They're a problem to be solved. We can figure out the mystery, 
but yeah, these are also unable. There's something to have a bigger meaning that we are unable to reach, but we can get a taste of it and figure yeah. out parts of it yeah. and wrap our minds around certain parts of it. But it's a mystery because we can't fully comprehend the entire meaning. So that's like an easier place to rest. in, I think when you're thinking about the terms of the mystery of faith or the mystery of this or that, it's like, well, we can understand a certain extent of it, but there's still some deeper meaning there for us to ponder. And that's like a cool thing. I mean, I think, yeah, like think and ponder and wonder and discuss things, obviously. So (laughs) or else we wouldn't be doing this right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, we wouldn't be. I mean, I think you make a good point. And I think also that it's, it's interesting to me how, like, I don't know where you live, but people love these like yard signs out here where I am, like near Washington, DC. And they have one where it's like, science is real. And they're like, everyone's like, science is real. And you put them all in your yard. And I'm just thinking about it because I was doing a lot of reading about um, just like the history of medicine and the plague and all this. And it was really, really recently in our history where science became almost like a separate religion in a lot of ways. Sort of like, this is how we think of it. It's germs. Before that, if you were a pregnant woman and um, a guy with one leg talked in front of you, you would be like, oh no, I'm going to have a child and my child's going to have a deformity. That's what people thought. Like thoughts can impact the birth of a child. And if it's, you know what I mean? Like that was the connotation. That was very recent in our history. Okay. <laughs> it's not been a long time. So my point is like, I'm not saying that I don't believe in the science. Of course, there are elements of like germs. Again, I get it a hundred percent. Right. But I think um, we sometimes are too quick to create another sort of cult of thought around something. And again, to your point about the mystery, um, we still don't know why certain things work, but yet we still use them because in quotes, it's science, but we still don't understand. I think a lot of the mystery of the body, why certain things work a certain way. And that's true for a lot of circumstances. It's not like one thing, it's many, many things, right? So I think it sort of goes to what, what you're saying. I think thinking back to, and to sort of like where we've come up until this point, he definitely is making a point. I think about, um, that fear of obedience and you brought it up to that fear of structure and that like almost push away or push back. You know what I mean? Like, um, like get this away from me, the structure. I don't want this to be part of my life. And, I think coming to understand and to embrace that instead and to be like, what am I like? Maybe it's not a fear of an obedience. Maybe it's again, a fear of an understanding, right? And the knowledge that you might either need to obtain or release to your point, maybe you don't need to know everything, right? And by coming to the altar, whatever that means to anybody, right? Or by coming, opening yourself up in prayer, you tapping into that higher knowledge, right? And what that peace that might give you. I don't know. It's just interesting to me to see sort of like how he's taking us along this journey of like, be present, like remove these distractions and then like preparing yourself. And now we get to the altar. See, we're almost like towards the end of the book when he gets to the altar portion. So think of all of what we have to do to get to this point, right? even to, to get to a point to maybe not even understand something, you know what I mean? But that's, that's the degree I think you need to take off the, in other words, like the crap of the world to strip all that stuff away, to really get to the essential part of what it means to be human. Right. And again, 
your point about God incarnate and Jesus being the son of man, who he called himself the son of man all the time. And when the, something's repeated in the Bible, you know, it's important, right? Why would he say that? The son of man, the son of man, the son of man. It's because he is us, right? It's like his experience is important to us because it's like God's experience, right? So again, I think walking into these mysteries, to your point, it's hard to do. You have to prepare yourself, which is what I love about the book, is it just takes us through the stages of like how one might prepare oneself to ponder things like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just really love this book. I can't get enough of it. So good. Like, I feel like you could underline like practically every other line. Like, you know, back to talking about what you were just saying, like at the very beginning of chapter nine, he says, through Christ, God ceased to be the unknown, the inaccessible one. He turned to us, came to us and became one of us in order that we might go to him and become one with him. Because think about like in the Old Testament, He's like, you can't even look at me because you will die. Like it's like, you know, he's like saying like we need to have like all these barriers and things like that, because like you will die if you see me in my fullness of self. So he sends down someone as a baby. Like I, I love to contemplate this with the children because they are always just like really wowed at the idea of how Christ could have came to us like Thor from the Avengers if he wanted you know, he could have come yeah. <laughs> on like lightning bolts and with an entourage of people like, this is Jesus, look at me, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Just to like see all of his glory in like um, unfree will like manner. Instead, he choose, chose to come as a helpless baby that humans took care of. And, yeah. the you know, he grew just like we grew. So he participated in our humanity, uh, the fullest extent, he experienced everything that we would have experienced except for sin. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's fascinating when you think about the fact that he could have chose differently, <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't even necessarily sit around and ponder that typically as humans, you know, this is another one of those things that you're not going to be sitting around thinking about until you give yourself the time to be contemplating the topic. Correct. So, yeah. But I mean, when you think about the nativity, you know, and and everything around it, it's like pretty fascinating, you know, because he, he was a helpless little baby, completely dependent on humans to yeah. take care of him and protect yeah, him, him. And Joseph, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and God let him go through all these years of development until he was 30. Like, think about that. I always yeah. wonder about that. Like, what did people think when Jesus didn't get married earlier? You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. We don't know. It's not in the Bible. That's just for us to, no. you know, he just worked a craft, learned to become a carpenter. I mean, this was not a lofty position he put his son in. No. He did not get born into some kind of rich, you know, Pharisee, you know, kind of family. He was in a working class family to a un, you know, literally an unwed mother at first, you know, it's like, these are our circumstances that we became so judge I mean, like culture was so judgy about at that time, less so now maybe, but like, I mean, these are all like, you know, very intense things to show the people then and the people now of how God cares more about what's on the inside, 
than any of these trappings of success that we think we have or our rightness or our legalism or whatever else. It's like, what is going on? Looking in at the soul and the intentions and the love of the internal person is so much more important. It's like the core of everything. Because if he can come into, be born in these humble circumstances, it's like, it's just so much fun to talk to the children about this because they love, they are small, they are weak. They are poor in a way, like everything that they have is just given to them by their parents. You know what I mean? Like it can be taken away. You know, this is why they're clinging to their toys and things like that. It's like they, they like are so connected to the concept of being someone who wasn't, you know, uh, he wasn't like born into some kind of comfortable situation either. It's like they can totally put themselves in that place because they're just full of imagination. They can think about, you know, what it was like to have been there or whatever else. It's, I just, it's so much fun to talk to with kids because they're just like, wow, I can't, I can't believe something so little became something so big. Cause you'll say stuff like what kind, you know, Jesus is the king, you know, king, right. But what kind of king it's for like, is this the bed of a king, a manger? No, but he came to be born and placed in a manger where animals ate food. I mean, wow. <laughs> Talk about humility. You know, I mean, Jesus is such a amazing example of humility, you know, and the people at the time, you know, just think about the reaction that he got about all of his parables. So anyway, we're getting kind of like far off on. No, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just such a fun tangent. I think there's a reason that Jesus's message resonated with people who had so little, right? Um, and we're always going to be powerless given the structure and the way that things worked at the time. Right. Um, the other thing I think that's interesting is how our culture, the society, you know, we're all about like, Oh, these young CEOs and people that can retire really early. And like, that to us is success, right? But Jesus was poor, never left where he was from, never went to college, died young. And we're still talking about him thousands of years later. So it's just interesting to me again, like just listening to you sort of go through that. It's just, I just, I don't know. I love, I'm not, again, Jesus is just the coolest thing in the world to me. I just, I love this. I love the stories. I love him and the energy of him. And I think getting back to the book again, like these types of, like how often do you ponder stuff like that? Unless you are able to sort of structure and prepare yourself to sort of venture into that. And I think that's what he's getting at again, but let's get to sort of, um, so we talked about altar threshold. Let's get to the second piece. Right. So he's talking about altar as table. And he's talking about the hunger and thirst of God, which is really interesting on page 47. The top he's saying like how the fruit of the divine sojourn on earth is salvation. This means not only our forgiveness and justification, but also that the world is brought home to the father. And again, not only in the sense that we return to God in love and obedience, but that men are received into the divine life and through men, all world, like the world in all of its reality, God desires us. And then they say how he longs for us. And I think this is really the, the crux of divine mercy right here. It's like, yeah, God is always seeking. He's waiting for us to connect. And I think people, when you look at the mass, it's like, he's there waiting for you <laughs> to connect mm -hmm. with him at mass. Like you, you're the one making the choice. 
here. Like you can go to church or not go to church. You can go every day if you want. He's there. It's up to you to make those choices, to continually turn towards him. And then there's a quote, um, or not a quote, but a reference to St. Augustine saying, receiving the Eucharist does not so much mean that we partake in the, of the divine life offered us as that the divine life draws us into itself. So mm-hmm. that, think about contemplation. <laughs> you know, the divine life drawing us into itself because it, it, it's there. Like it's up to us to take the time to access it, to put ourselves in the place of preparation and composure to be thinking about these things and connecting with these things. And we can do it to whatever extent that we want to very little or very much. Yeah. I think that, I think you're making a good point. Um, And the concept of free will has come up several times during this conversation. I think it's important too, because, and I think it's also interesting to note like this, none of this is a requirement but all of what you might need is also there. Should you need sharing it almost like it's always going to be there. Um, my tradition doesn't require you to go to church to get it. It's just something that you can do at any moment of your life. (laughs) It's like any moment you can have that connection. if You'd like it if you want it. Um, but I think there's just so much fear. Um, and it takes, and I think it takes some degree of training. And you've talked about this, right. To, understand how to access it. And I think the reason for that is like when we're young, I don't think we need much. Right. Cause you know, I, I don't know why I won't speculate, but like, you just don't, I maybe the ego is not as strong. You're just sort of like experiencing the world. I heard one comparison to like toddlers and babies, their experience is like an adult on acid. Everything's amazing. The world is love. And then as you grow older and that ego and that sense of self develops, you, that comes away a little bit. And you're thinking about the past and how your classmates made fun of you. You're worried about the future and the school trip and that other self starts to form. Right. And we sort of lose ourselves. Right. So I think the reason for the book and some of what you were discussing with sort of like, I think understanding religion and ritual can really help some people come into contact with that. Not everybody, but some people it works. I think it can work very, very well. And I think this is a really interesting book because it will help educate if you're interested in this type of form of worship, right? Or just being as a person. I think in, like by educating yourself and being knowledgeable, you can really have some really cool, not just like, oh, wow, what a fun mystical experience, but I think it can like change your life in such a fundamental way. Um, so that, I think that's what's neat about it. And that's what I really take this sort of, as we get further in the book, this, this second part of this chapter is sort of showing that being drawn into this, um, and know that it's always there and ready. Um, should you wish to cross the threshold and again, the concept of free will, right? The choice is ours. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, yeah, obviously different faiths, different, you know, different Christian denominations have a different encounter with what they can see are their church services and whatever else. But he does bring out how on the beginning of chapter eight, how our, there's what's essential to the Catholic faith is having this circumscribed area of the church, a sacred space, because it's arranged and specified with the greatest care 
and having this specially prepared place stresses the otherness of our conversion. So mm-hmm. by the otherness, it's like we are entering into like this divinity that's not, you know, that is something that is a mystery to be contemplating, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't just take place anywhere, but it's up to us if we want to go that, that depth of connection, right? I mean, because you could, there's plenty of people out there that are like, I encounter God a whole lot more when I'm out in the woods hunting than I would ever in church, right? <laughs> or, you know, like I will pray at home, God and I have our own relationship, whatever else. So it's our own personal choice, again, to always decide how we want to encounter God, what level we're going to go and how our depth and our participation in that and our free will is just you know, the very essence to our relationship here, because I I don't know, when we were talking about this earlier, I kind of had this thought, it's like, there's just something that happens when you develop as you real maturity, where you start to understand that um, rules don't necessarily mean a restrict (laughs) structure allows you to have more freedom. Okay. And this is like a weird turn of your brain, like having routines or structure in certain areas can give you that freedom of better decision-making, more time on your hands, more ability to to do the things that you want to do that you love. So I think that's something that is also can be applied to God's rules for us or God's, you know, um, the idea of giving up our will for what God wants for us. There's like a, a turn in your maturity that you kind of access when you get to a certain point in life. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I think it's a very individual experience and it's not universal, but I think yeah. for some people, I think what you're saying is absolutely going to resonate because yes, I think, um, especially someone that's been almost like running from it for a very long time to like face it. And they've not like, what am I so afraid about when it comes to this? Right. Yeah. A lot of wisdom in facing that and in trying something right. And seeing like, okay, well, I've been resisting this for a very long time. Let's find out why. And to find out why you have to try it. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, right. And then see, like, is this, what I've been fearing, what part of myself has been resistant to this and what might those reasons be, right? And then see what's behind the door, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, for next week, we can probably do the next two chapters, Holy Day, chapter 10, and chapter 11, Holy Day in the Sacred Hour. Okay, I'm excited. Those seem to me to be going together. Okay, I think they definitely go together. Um, holy day, holy day. <laughs> holy day and holy day, number one, number two. Um, it's interesting. I'm reading a book. I'm reading a nonfiction book right now. And it just talks a little bit about um, sort of, you know, medieval times and the church and how these different holy days and feast days came about. And then all the different rules for conduct during the holy days and the feast days. There were like uh-huh. whole sort of rules for like, if you could... Um, like eat certain things or be with certain people or do a certain activity, which is, you can stop recording. So I don't know if this is part of this, but um, just tell us the name. Do you know it? So one book was called the dark Queens. Okay. And the other one, it's the sex lives of medieval women. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's Sounds very good. Um, 
you would not believe it's just crazy. Um, and it's really interesting too, that the second book is interesting because it talks about certain women that like did not want to be forced into marriage would just be like, well, I'll just be part of a convent. And it talks about all the different convents of which there were many like convents huge in the medieval time, because again, like they offered women access to power and education and some of them, not all of them, but there was a lot of diversity within the convent system too, and different rules. It's, it was hugely fascinating and also proves, and the author said this, she's like, a lot of what you think you know about the middle ages is wrong just because Hollywood and you know what I mean? So it was really blew my mind. And the dark Queens were about, um, two Queens to around the middle ages. Um, again, that were in and out of convents, but ended up ascending and ruling part of France and just talked about sort of like, again, like how the church really played into the alliances that they made and the rules that they had to abide by, um, and ultimately how they got punished. And it's just fascinating. Good stuff. I'll be back with another episode in one week. In the meantime, check out more content on olivebranchmom.com and follow me on Instagram at olivebranchmom. Check out my show notes for links to both. Thanks for listening.